If you would, uh, grab your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, and uh, we're going to be reading uh, uh, all the way through verse 25 this morning, so a little bit longer passage, but uh, I want to invite you all to stand together as we give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The Gospel according to Luke chapter 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news, and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among people. This is the word of the Lord. Guys, please pray with me. Lord, we thank You for Luke's account of the one Gospel. He gives us the Gospel according to Luke. In the words of the angel, we, we believe to be true because we experience the joy that You declared of this child who was to be born, Jesus. That joy is still reverberating throughout the world today and it's in our hearts. We are a people who just sang with joy and rejoicing to you for what you have done through your son Christ. Your son Christ stepped out of heaven to become a baby, to become man, the incarnation, to live the perfect life in our place and to die on the cross for our sin, was buried and then three days later rose again so that we might have life. And Lord, in that we rejoice. And so Lord, I just pray if there's anyone in here who is doubting that you would give faith to those who are doubting that you would give hope to those who are in despair, to give encouragement to those who are downcast, and to give joy to those who are dejected. Lord, faith, hope, encouragement, joy, and love are only found in one person, and that is you. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear of this familiar story we're about to embark on. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Guys, go ahead and have a seat. One of the best things that I love about being a pastor is to watch the Lord work in all of your lives. Uh, Dustin, I I think the first time I met Dustin, he was in middle school. He was in middle school. Now he's a man who's got a beautiful wife, Rebecca, and about to have his third child. (laughs) Unbelievable. It also makes you feel a little bit old, too, you know, uh, on that. So it's just a joy, just a joy to celebrate. Well, we're in Luke. We're opening up a new study, as is the habit of here. We go through books of the Bible. If you're new from the cross, if you're visiting with us, we're starting a new study, the Gospel according to Luke. And I want to start off with a statement that we're all familiar with, and I want you to finish the statement uh, when when I ask you to. And here's the statement. There are two things that are certain in life. They are death and taxes, right? Death, those are the two things. Now, if you follow that statement, that's a pretty bleak statement if you think about it, right? I mean, there's really no, not a lot of hope for you and me because if there's only two things that are certain, that means what? That means everything else in life is uncertain. And who wants to live a life of uncertainty? Who wants to live a life that what is certain is a life of uncertainty? I know you don't, and I know I don't. And this is one of the reasons why we picked the book of Luke to go through. This is one of the reasons, because we look at our culture out there, there is a lot of uncertainty. And the things that we thought were certain like 10 years ago are now uncertain. Like what is marriage? What is a man? What is a woman? We see these things that we think are certain now are uncertain. And this is why we've come to the Gospel of Luke, because we need to stand on certainty in today's day and age. And this is what Luke 1.4 1.4 says, this is the purpose, this is the reason why Luke wrote this book. He says, I have written this account so that for this purpose you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And he's writing to his good friend Theophilus. And what can we be certain about, Luke? What, what, what can we be certain about? Well, there's a lot of things that we're going to unpack that we can be certain about, but this is one thing Luke says we can be certain about in Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. But what we can be certain about is that God sent His Son, Jesus, to seek and save the lost, to, to seek sinners like you and me who are separated from God because of our sin. He has come to seek and save you and me. And this is where we need to begin. If we want to have certainty in life, we must begin at the foundational point of, of one who is the giver of certainty. The giver of certainty is God Himself, found in His Son, Jesus Christ. And what is that certainty? It's our salvation. We can be certain that we have been saved because Jesus has come and lived the perfect life in your place. He's died on the cross for your sin and my sin. He rose again. That's what we can be certain, that our salvation has been secured by Jesus. Therefore, because of the certainty of our salvation through Jesus Christ, we can live an abundant life in the midst of so much uncertainty. uncertainty, Amen? And this is what the Gospel of Luke is going to unpack for us over the next several months. So let's look at the first thing. First, we see the certainty of salvation through Jesus Christ is rooted in history. The certainty of salvation through Jesus Christ is rooted in history. Look at Luke 1, 1 through 4. Now quickly, we need to do a little historical background on our guide, Luke. We're, we're starting a new book. Typically, we probably spend a whole sermon on this, but we just got to kind of condense this because um, we're starting here in Advent. And so, a little background on our guide, Luke. First, he was a Gentile. He was not Jewish. He was born in, in probably Antioch, people think. Now, the reason why this is so important is because we have 66 books that are in our Bible, right? Well, 65 of them are written by Jewish men. There's only one written by a Gentile man, and that's the book of Luke. We know that he was a doctor in Colossians chapter 4. We also know that he was a a good companion of the Apostle Paul. In fact, not only did he write the, the Gospel of Luke, but he also wrote Acts. And he joined Paul in his second, third, and fourth missionary journey. You see, there's, a, there's some pronouns. He, he, he wrote Acts. In the first 15, he talks about they and them. And then in verse 16, we see that he starts to use the word we. He joined Paul, which was good for Paul. That Luke was a doctor and joined him on these missionary journeys. Why? Because Paul was always getting right hurt, shipwrecked, or beaten up, right? 
and he needs some medical attention, and therefore, that's good that, that, that the God said, hey, here, Paul, here's Luke. Luke's going to come join you. So he was a companion of Paul. Here's also something for you, for you uh, Bible, Bible trivia people. Uh, he wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts, we know that. But these two books make up almost one-third of the entire New Testament. One author, a Gentile author, gives us almost one-third or 28% of the book of the New Testament. Paul wrote 13 books, and all of his material combined only gives us 24%. So this has, Luke has much to say from us, for us. Let me give you a couple themes or uh, things that are emphasized by Luke. Luke, the gospel according to Luke, gives us the most detailed and most orderly account of Jesus' life, starting with his birth. No one gives us as much detail as not even before, uh, even before Jesus' birth. We're going to talk about John the Baptist. He gives us this incredible detail in this, of this orderly account from the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ. And so much of our favorite stories come from Luke that aren't found in the other gospels such as the prodigal son. Who loves the prodigal son in here? Amen. The good Samaritan. Who doesn't love the good Samaritan in here, right? The road to Emmaus. My son and I, Nate, were talking. He goes, my favorite story, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is, is when Jesus met to the two men on the road to Emmaus. That comes from Luke. It comes from Luke. And so many other stories. He has a major emphasis on the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He unpacked, the, he, he shows us the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit all throughout his gospel more than any other. He highlights Jesus' ministry in particular to the socially outcast, to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, people like you and me. Luke, Luke is writing to you and me. Uh, he has an emphasis on women in the Scripture and the, the primary role that they play. Emphasize the ministry to the poor, to sinners such as tax collectors, prostitutes. And finally, we know that, that Luke is one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's one of the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is kind of separate. And if we were to sum up all those, we know that Matthew would, would, would be summed up as Jesus as King. That's what Matthew's theme is, Jesus as King. Mark is Jesus as Servant. John is be Jesus as Savior, and for Luke, it was Jesus as man. Now, one of the phrases that we see over and over again is the, the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man. It emphasizes His humanity so that we can, we can, we can walk side by side with Jesus and they're like, hey, He's just like me. He feels like me. He thinks like me. He suffers like me. We can relate to Jesus in His humanity. He was fully man. And again, this is written primarily to Gentiles, to a Roman and Greek audience. And the Romans and Greeks had this idealistic, what, what, is the, what does the perfect man look like? What does the perfect man emotionally and spiritually and physically? They had this understanding. And, and Luke writes his account to say, you want to know who the perfect man is? I'll show you the perfect man. His name is Jesus. So these are some of the things that, that surround that we're going to learn about the Gospel of Luke. And now as we set in this context of history, as you recall, as Rich already mentioned, we just finished up the story uh, and studying through the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, along with Malachi, were the last two books written in the Old Testament canon, the last words written. And, and as you remember, Nehemiah 13 left us uh, with kind of like a dud ending, Right? It was anticlimactic. It was like, man, they had this big revival, and then all of a sudden in, in chapter 10 and 11, there's big revival, and then 12 and 13, it kind of goes downhill. And what was meant to capture the reader's heart in there and the Jew's heart is this longing for the Messiah, the one who was promised, the serpent crusher in Genesis 3.15, has still not come. Was it Abraham? No. Was it Moses? No. Was it David? No. Was it Solomon? No. Was it Nehemiah? No. Was it the temple, the priesthood, the sacrificial system that Nehemiah brought back? No, no, and no. And then God shuts his voice. And there's 400 years of silence until Christmas. It's been 400 years of silence from the Lord, but he breaks his silence with the Christmas story. The sending of His Son Jesus to the manger. The Savior, the, the Christ, who was sent by God to save His people, you 
and me from our sin. This is that story that we can be certain about. Now let's look at verse 1 of chapter 1. Not only is Luke a doctor, but we also see he's an investigative reporter. He's a, he's a historian. He's even kind of like an archaeologist. And not like the guys from like Fox News or CNN, but more like Indiana Jones. I mean, this guy is out with Paul. He's in the midst of it. He's digging up things. He's interviewing people. He's, he's um, just compiling all this information. And one one says this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative. So many have done this. We have three other accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. There's others that have an account of this. He's not the only one. But he says, many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers. And the beginning there is not the beginning of creation. It's the beginning of Jesus' ministry. They were eyewitnesses of the beginning of Jesus' ministry of the word have delivered to them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may, there's a purpose, so that you may have certainty concerning all the things that you have been taught. You see that he's writing to his this gentleman, most excellent Theophilus. This is his friend. This is his good buddy. We don't know much about him. We just know that he's a good friend. And it's only written here in Luke, but he also addresses the book of Acts to Theophilus. And, and he's some kind of Roman dignitary, most excellent Theophilus. But all this investigation he's doing for his friend. He, he's gathering all the facts. He's gathering all the evidence. He's, he's, he's interviewing all the eyewitnesses and the, and the servants, the ministers are there. Who, who would that have been? Of course, that would have been his disciples, right? It would have been like Peter and, and John and Andrew. But then also it would have been like women like Mary, the, the mother of Jesus, Mary and Martha, maybe even Joanna. She had a humongous impact on the early church. And so he, he's interviewing all these eyewitnesses to Jesus and his ministry. But not only that, he's using primary sources. Uh, Matthew and Mark are kind of the first two uh, books that have been written in the Gospels. Luke's come after that. So he's, he's interviewing again Matthew and Mark, and he's using their material also in his studies. And he's gathering all this. And it takes him quite a bit of time to do this. And he compiles it, follows things, all things closely to, again, write this orderly account. And again, what was his motive to do this? It was for a friend. It was for a friend so that he might have certainty concerning the things that he has been taught. So we're assuming he's writing this because his friend Theophilus, a Christian, a follower of Christ, has some doubts, has some uncertainty in his life. And so Luke, as a good friend, compiles, does an investigation, and writes this long letter to his pal to encourage him, to strengthen his faith. So this is a historical investigation for personal, intimate friendship. You might have heard the phrase that we have a, a friend in Jesus. What a good friend we have in Jesus, right? What a good friend we have in Luke as well. Because not only has he written this to Theophilus, but by the Holy Spirit, this has been written to us. God has preserved His work for you and for me. Again, there's purposes that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. That's the general thing of you can be certain about who Jesus is. You can be certain about the incarnation. You can be certain about His perfect life lived, His death on the cross, His resurrection. And you can be certain about His message, the Gospel. Sir William Ramsey was one of the great historians of the 1900s. He was a university professor in Edinburgh. And he was a, a first-rate archaeologist, historian, but he was an atheist. He was hostile to the Christian faith. And he decided to set out to prove the Bible wrong. To prove the Bible wrong. And um, his primary resource he was going to use to prove the Bible wrong was the Gospel of Luke and Acts. He said he was going to take the Gospel of Luke, he's going to take the book of Acts, he's going to go to the Middle East, and he was going to prove that everything that Luke said was a lie or not true. The events, the places, etc. He was going to prove that he was a better historian than Luke, and Luke was a fraud. Well, to make a long story short, 
Sir William Ramsey went to the Middle East, a skeptic and an atheist, and he came back a Christian. He came back a Christian because of the historical, he said, because of the historical accuracy and the certainty of Luke's writings. All the events, all the places, all the cultural background proved to be 100% accurate from the pen of Luke. And of course, that's not news to us because we know he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. He was carried along by God as he was writing this word. And here's the principle for us today. As you, del- as you walk and talk with your friends, you're going to have friends that are skeptics. You're going to have friends that are atheists. You're going to have friends that are going to say like, oh, you be- believe the Bible? That's a bunch of fairy tales and myths and just made up stories. Uh, you don't need to cower. You can say, bring it on. If you feel like that, bring on your doubts. Bring on your skepticisms and take them to the Scriptures in light of that. You, you challenge the Scriptures you challenge me and let me show you the accuracy and the certainty of God's Word. As we, as we start this study, there, there might be some, some Sir William Ramseys in the groups this size this large. There, there might be some of you in here that are skeptical, that are skeptics. That maybe you're, you're like, who is this Jesus? Who is this God? You have questions. And Luke says, hello, welcome. And he invites you in on this journey with him to study his letter to his friend. Most of us in here, though, are like Theophilus. We are Christians. We are followers of Christ. We we believe this book, and yet we also have some doubts. We also might have some uncertainties that are lingering in our hearts and our minds. And Luke says, hello, welcome. Come along this journey with me as we unpack this letter to a friend. You see, most of us in here are like the Father in Mark 9.24, where we say, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. And maybe put it this way, since we're talking about certainty, we might say it this way, I am certain, but help me in my uncertainty. Anyone in here with me? Well, Luke wrote this gospel for you, for me. And we can be certain of what we believe about Jesus Christ. That God became man that lived and dwelt among us. The incarnation is true. The gospel is true. And what is true is the invisible became visible. The untouchable became untouchable. The transcendent one descended. The unlimited became limited. The infinite became finite. The unbreakable became fragile. The independent became dependent. The almighty became weak. The love became hated. The exalted was humbled. Spirit became matter. Eternity entered time. And glory was subjected to shame for your sake and my sake. This is what we can be clear about. The love of God found in Christ Jesus for you and for me. That takes us to our second point. This is where we'll spend most of our time. The certainty of our salvation begins with an answered prayer. The certainty of our salvation begins with an answered prayer. Luke 1, 5 through 25. Look at verse 5 with me. In the days of Herod, this is Herod the Great, Herod the First. Uh, he was a ruler. He was a king of Judea. Uh, he was an Edomite. He came from the line of Esau. He hated the Jewish people. And we'll see this unpacked throughout the, the Gospels. But he hated them. He was an evil man. He was an evil man. He's a prideful man. He was a paranoid man, often killing his own wife and, and, and sons because of his paranoia. He was a wicked man. So this is the, the time in which this story begins in the time of Herod. And then there was a priest named Zechariah, this, this no-name priest, Zechariah, of the division of Abijah. Now, now, Abijah connects us to Nehemiah. Because if you remember, in Nehemiah chapter 12, we had all those long lists of names Well, Abijah was one of the priests to come back with Zerubbabel during that first wave of exiles from Babylon. He was one of the the, the, the priests that came back with Zerubbabel to establish the priesthood, Abijah. So this is where Zechariah, 400 years later, they followed his line from Abijah to Zechariah. So this Luke connects us back to the Old Covenant, to Nehemiah. In fact, Luke's gospel 
uh, does that better than probably any other gospels as we will continue to see. So anyway, he's, he's connected to this, this priestly division of Abijah. And, and he said, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And verse 6 says, they were both righteous before the Lord, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. And, and we know these people soon to be introduced as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer's, Baptizer's parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth. They, they loved God. They had a, a vibrant relationship with God. They weren't sinless, even though it says that they were righteous and blameless. What it means is they had a vibrant relationship with God. They followed the Lord under the old covenant. They, they followed Him. They loved Him. They served Him. They gave their life for Him. And yet, even though they were righteous and blameless, they still had struggles. They still had some pain. They were childless. Elizabeth was barren. And back in that culture, that would have been really a lot of shame. She would have been seen as a woman of disgrace. Some even say that they would go to like, this would be a punishment for some secret sin. And of course, we know that none of that's the case because they were righteous and blameless, but that's what culture's perception was. And so we see that she had three strikes against her, that she had no child because she was barren, and they were both advanced in years. They were old. For this time, they were probably about 50 or 60. That was really, really old back then. And so there was some pain. There was some struggle. But this is what Luke is setting up when he talks about these three strikes against Elizabeth. Is He's, he's saying that this family could never have a child. In fact, if something was to, if this man was to have a child, it would be a miracle. It would be the impossible becoming possible. And so Luke is setting this up because whenever throughout Scripture we read about a barren woman, it should be our indicator should be like, uh-oh, wake up, the Lord's about to do something incredible. There are six women in the Bible that are, are barren. And in each of those instances, we see that the Lord does something significant awesome through the woman and her child. The first one is Sarah. She's the first woman, Sarah. She gives birth to who? Isaac. The next woman is Rebecca. She gives birth to who? Jacob and Esau. The next one is Rachel. Who does she give birth to? Joseph. The next one is Hannah. Who does she give birth to? Samuel the prophet that would lead David. And then you have Manoah, his wife is nameless, but do you know who his wife gave birth to? Samson. And then you have Elizabeth. And so when you read about a barren woman, it's not like, oh man, yes, we should sympathize with her, but we also say like, uh-oh, God is about to do something. And this is what we see with Elizabeth. Look at verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, verse 9, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by a lot, casting lots, remember we talked about that in Nehemiah also, to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, this is an incredible once-in-a-lifetime honor. And so let me explain this real quick, because I want to show you how incredible this is, is that there were about 18,000 priests back in this time. And they were split up into 24 divisions, or I think 24 teams. So you had 24 teams of 18,000 priests. That means there was about 750 in each of those teams, according to my public school math, all right? And so every year, they would work two weeks out of each year, so four times. They would work for two weeks, they would go home, then they'd come back six months later and work another two weeks, okay? And so for, for Zechariah... When the lot was cast for his job in the temple, he got he was get the one to get to walk into the holy place and burn the incense to the Lord. This was an incredible honor. Most priests didn't. This is like winning the lottery. It's an incredible time. And so Zechariah, lot falls on him. We know that we said the cast of lots, every decision of the Lord. It's like the Lord chose him to go into the temple. So he is on cloud nine, a major opportunity. 
And this is typically what happened. There'd be two prayer times during the day back then. There'd be a 6 a.m. prayer time, and then there would also be a 3 p.m. prayer time where the people would gather, the people outside would be praying. The, the priest, like Zechariah, would hear the prayers of the people. He would take them into the holy place. Now, we have a picture of the holy place to kind of give you a picture of this. So he gets the prince. Uh, there we go. Okay. So this is Zechariah in here. Okay. And so this is the holy place separated by the curtain of the Holy of Holies. And so he would get the prayers of the people. He would go in, and on the right you had the, the showbread, on the, on the left you had the menorah, then you had this place where he would light the incense, and you kind of see the smoke going up. And what he would do is those, that, that represented the prayers of the people. He would pray on behalf of the people, Lord, send the Messiah, send the Savior. We're longing for him. Pray for him. But they also said some other prayers. He also said another prayer. And this is what we see in verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Now again, the people are outside praying. Zechariah is in the holy. And just on the other side is the holy of holies. So this is as close as any person can get outside the high priest to the presence of God in that day. This is as close as you can get. Again, this is Old Covenant. This is as close as you could get. Just on the other side is the presence of the Lord. So here is Zechariah. He's praying. The prayers are going up. And then all of a sudden, he should be the only one in there. All of a sudden, his like spidey senses start tingling. You know what I'm saying? It's like, you know, like, hey, there's, there's someone else in the room with me right now. You know, I don't know if you guys have ever had that feeling I had a couple times. Um, anyhow, he opens up his eyes and he sees not a man, but an angel. And of course, it freaks him out. And we see that the angel does what angels do. They, they go through angel school up in heaven Hey, I'm going to send you down, and, and, and when you show yourself to a human, they're going to freak out. So one of the first things you say is, do not be afraid. So, so Gabriel did a good job. He, he, he listened to what he was taught in heaven. Do not be afraid. And, and notice, the angel knows his name. It's personal. It's Zachariah. But I want you to notice this. Again, Zachariah is offering prayers for the people and his prayers at the same time. But what does the angel say? He says, do not be afraid, Zachariah for your what? Prayer, singular, has been answered. What do you think he was praying for? Again, he's 50, 60 years old. This is, this is the one-time event. This is as close to God as he will ever get. It's his one shot, his one opportunity for prayer. And what does he ask for? Zechariah tells us, and your wife will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. How awesome is that? Real quick, let's talk a couple things on prayer. I'm going to highlight three principles of prayer real quick. One, Zechariah, again, is in the Old Covenant. This, again, this is as close as he's going to get. There's a, there's a veil that separates him. He, he can't get into the presence of God. He's just outside the presence of God, but we live in the New Covenant. The veil has been torn from top to bottom. We have instant access to the very presence of God, our prayers. If you get, a lot of times, if you get a prayer request or a prayer from me, you're going to hear, like, I have lifted you up before the throne of grace. And part of the reasons why I start that prayer off is because I want you to understand that we have direct access to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We don't have to go through a priest. We, we, we go directly towards Him. And so one, that's number one. You and I have access directly to the presence of God. Not just once a day, not just one time a year, but 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. We have access to God. Speak to Him. Pray to Him. Praise Him. Ask Him for things. That's number one. Number two, we see that 
Zechariah is a man who teaches us about persevering in prayer. Persevering in prayer. Again, he's 50, 60 years old, so he's probably spent 40 years, decades upon decades upon decades, crying out to the Lord to give him a son, to give him a child, to take the, to take the disgrace off his wife. 40 years he's been praying for that. Persistence. What have you prayed for persistence for a long period of time? For, for most of us Americans, we're, we're the, the people of get it now, instant, fast food, we want, you know, we need gas, we go to the gas pump, get gas, we want a Twinkie, we go to the Circle K, get a Twinkie, right? It's like, we want it, we get it. And when we pray, we, we, the Lord answers prayers in three ways. He says yes, He says no, and He says wait, or maybe later. And too often, I think we take wait or I'm going to answer that later with no, and we stop praying for things, right? It's like, oh, no, the Lord has, I've been praying for it for, for, for three hours. The Lord's not giving it to me. He must not want me to have it, right? And then we go on to the next thing. What Zechariah is, uh, points us to is be persistent in prayer. Keep praying. The Lord lays something on your heart. Don't stop asking Him for it. Keep praying. Keep believing. Maybe the answer is not yet. Just wait. It's later I'm going to give it to you. And then thirdly, this is it. The last thing. What if the Lord sends you an angel later on today? And He says, I'm going to give you everything that you prayed for this last week. What would He give you? What have you prayed for? There's three lessons, quick lessons we can learn from Zechariah. But we see that this is verse 14, and then in verse 13, notice there's no pause in the break of the angel. This, this angel, Gabriel, we know him later, he's chatty and relevant. He, doesn't, he likes to talk, and he keeps going. The angel just keeps on talking, even though he sees Zechariah freaking out. He just keeps on ripping everything else. John will be and do, and how the people are going to respond to him. Verses 14 through 17, this is what he says about John that joy and gladness is going to be given to you and others because of John. That he's going to be great before the Lord. That he's going to take a Nazarite vow or this aesthetic vow and have no alcohol. Verse 15, again, remember we said that one of Luke's main things is to show the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Well, here the Holy Spirit shows up in verse 15. And here's a couple things about, we can say a lot about this, but let me just highlight a couple things. One, redemption begins in the womb. That's number one. Here's a theological truth. And proof that, 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 that it's, a, it's a life, it's a baby in the womb because the Holy Spirit doesn't indwell things. He indwells people. And here we see that John was filled with the Spirit in his mother's womb. And he says many are going to turn from the Lord. And John's going to be this great preacher. What is John's message? Repent. He's a one-trick pony. John, I, I missed uh, last week's message. What, 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 is, what was last week's message? Repent. Okay, good. What, what, what's this week's message? Repent. He has one message. It's repent. Then we see in verse 17, it talks about your son will be the forerunner. Uh, the forerunner. He will come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. This is Isaiah 4. This is what we talked about or quoted when we lit the candle. There's a voice in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. This is who your son is going to be. Not only am I going to give you a son, but I'm going to give you the son who is the forerunner to the son. It's an incredible, an incredible promise. And how does he respond? Look at verse 18. Zachariah says, how is this going to be, Mr. Angel? Because I am old and so is my wife. How is this going to happen? Now put yourself in his shoes. How would you have responded? I, I would have responded like this as well, with uncertainty, with a doubt. First, he's, he's stunned by the presence, the angel in the room. He's fearful. And then he just hears this incredible promise from this angel that you're not going to have a son, but he's going to be the forerunner to the Messiah. And you can see him going like, really? Really? The, the reason why he 
as we, we see later on, he's unable to speak is because his motive is he didn't believe the words. He didn't believe the promise of God through his angel. And that's many of us. We, we, we can be like Zechariah. That we ask for even something more than God's word and his promise to us. We say, really? Did, did God really say? Did, did, did God really say that the only way, all I have to do to believe is trust in what Christ has done for my sins that were saved by grace through faith alone? Really? I, I don't have to do anything extra? Did God really say? Did, did, did God really say, really, that my sins, my past, my present, and my future sins have been totally wiped away? Really? We can all be like Zechariah. We can doubt in the promises of God. But we'll see in, in a bit God's goodness, even in our doubting. Look at verse 19. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you to bring you this good news. Now, I probably would have stopped at Gabriel Black Day. Yo, bro, why don't you start out with that? You know, then I might have believed you. Then I wouldn't have been in so much of a doubt. Why don't you start out with saying, hey, I'm coming from God, etc., etc.? And he says, Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words. There was the doubt, there was that uncertainty from Zechariah, which will be filled in their time. Now, this is all happening in the temple. By, by this time, Zechariah should have been out, and he should have gave the blessing over the people by now. But the, the, the people are like, where is John? What the heck is taking him so long? And then we say in verse 22 that when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them, and he remained mute. And so here, John comes, I mean, Zechariah comes out, and we have the first game of charades ever implemented right here. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine this? Zechariah just had the greatest day of his life. He's just been told that what he's been praying for for 40, 50 years has come to pass. Not only has he been given a child, but it's even going to be an individual blessing, but it's even going to be a corporate blessing that's going to bless all of Israel that is the child, the forerunner to the Messiah. And he comes out and he can't even tell anybody. He can't even tell his wife. He's mute. He can't speak. <clears throat> and then they go their way back home. His time is up serving. Now, as I said, the Gospel of Luke is the best connector of the Gospel between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And again, the Old Testament ends with Nehemiah and Malachi. Those are two contemporaries. Uh, we looked at Mal uh, Nehemiah, but also Malachi. And Malachi's last words, last written words in Old Testament canon are this, Malachi 4-5. Behold... I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children, and the hearts of their children to their fathers, lest I come and strike them in the land with a decree of utter destruction. Where the Old Testament, where the Holy Spirit ended, 400 silence, Luke begins. He begins with this prophecy. He begins with Zechariah giving birth to John, the forerunner, the one like Elijah in verse 17. John will point the world to the one in whom they longed for for so many centuries. Jesus, the baby in the manger, will grow up and be the serpent crusher, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God's providence is so cool. Details matter. This is, this is, this is, this is incredible right here. This is awesome. Do you know what Zachariah's name means? Zachariah's name means God remembers. Do you know what Elizabeth's name means? God's oath. And so when you put Mr. and Mrs. Zachariah together, what do you get? God remembers God's oath. Old Testament canon was closed with, I'm going to send you the forerunner. The New Testament canon was open with the forerunner, 
is coming. God remembers God's oath. How awesome is that? These little details that make up this story that you can be certain about that God is writing this story. Now, don't miss this. Even in Zechariah's doubting, even in Zechariah's uncertainty about the message from the angel, the Lord still blesses him with a son. Don't miss that. Even in Zechariah's unfaithfulness, God's good to him still and gives him a son. Again, not only a son, but the son that will pave the way for the Messiah. And this is what's certain. God's promises, God's promises will come to pass because they are based on His Word, on His character, and not on our perfect obedience or our perfect faith. He works through us. And some of you need to hear that today. Some of you need to hear that this morning. The Lord meets His people. The Lord meets you and me in our doubts with grace. The Lord meets His people in our doubts with grace. Do you know what John's word name means? John's name means God is gracious. Zechariah doubts the angel. You're going to name him John. God is gracious. Even in your doubting, I'm going to be gracious to you. And Zechariah, from here on out, whenever you doubt the Lord, you're going to look at your son John and be like, God is gracious. It's the same with you and for me. Some of you need to hear that this morning. Psalm 103 says this, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's how He treats His children, you and me. Even in the midst of our doubt, even in the midst of our uncertainty, He bestows and gives us grace, steadfast love, and mercy. Now that's Zechariah. How about Elizabeth? Watch God's grace spill all over Elizabeth. One, not only does she now she get to <laughs> now she <laughs> ladies, you probably love this if you were Elizabeth. Your husband can't speak for the next nine months. So you win every argument, you get everything you want, right? <laughs> it's not even one there's grace there. But two, she experienced going from disgrace to a testimony of God's grace. For decades she has been disgraced because she was barren. Everyone's eyes were on all the other little families having babies. But not on Elizabeth, except for two. The Lord and her husband. They had their eyes on Elizabeth. You see, <clears throat> again, if we go back and say that the way they were described, Elizabeth and Zachariah, is they were righteous and blameless not bitter and frustrated because they didn't have a baby. Why weren't they that way? Why wasn't she bitter and frustrated? I'm sure she had some times like, why, Lord, why haven't you given me a child? I'm sure she begged, but the overall countenance was she trusted in the Lord's providence. And she had a husband. And she had a husband that loved her, that cherished her, that nourished her through her pain, and her struggle. That's just a quick application for you men in here. Those that are married to, to wives, their struggle might be with this very topic. Struggling to conceive their first child or another child. And, and while we celebrate, and rightly so, others having babies, we celebrate that. You need to have your eyes on your wife. Serving her. Loving her. Meeting her needs the way she needs to be met. And maybe it's not with Maybe it's another struggle your wife has. Men, she needs to be seen by you. Well, look at verse 24. 
In these days, Elizabeth conceived, and for five months, she kept herself hidden. Saying, verse 25, these are some of the most precious verses in all the rest of Scripture. Just listen and feel Elizabeth's praise after decades of despair. Verse 25, Thus the Lord has done this to me, or for me, in the days when He looked upon me to take away my disgrace, to take away my reproach, to to take away my shame among people. I mean, I don't know about you, but isn't this awesome? As you're reading this story, as you understand what's going on in her heart for years, don't you now feel happy for Elizabeth? Doesn't, doesn't joy kind of start to overfill your heart like, yes! Yes, Lord! Thank you, Lord! I mean, you, you, can, just, you can just see Elizabeth sitting in her chair. She's five months old. She probably got a little baby bump, you know. And she's sitting there rubbing her belly, just thanking the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. The Lord has taken away my disgrace. She has gone from disgrace. You know what disgrace means? It means without grace. To now a testimony of God's grace. And in the story, that that her son is going to be the forerunner for Christ. So her story has been said for thousands of years and she's been lifted up as a woman of great grace. And this is what the story of redemption is all about. It's about a God who gives great grace to those of us in disgrace. Apart from Him, we are a people of disgrace and we have no hope. But by His grace, by His mercy, by His love, He, he gives us grace. We were enemies of God and He now brings us in and calls us children of God. You remember Hebrews 12.2 says this, looking to Jesus, who for the joy set before Him went to the cross, despising the shame. So if you're in here this morning and you, and you are living under the guilt and the disgrace and the shame of your sin, Jesus wants to lift that from you. He wants to take it. He wants to put it on Him. And He wants to give you grace. He wants to take away your approach, reproach so that you can live and worship Him as Elizabeth. And how you receive that is through repentance and faith in what Christ has done for you. And so I pray if you don't know Christ, that today you would become a testimony of His grace. And for us that have, again, that our certainty would just be strengthened and reminded by God's grace in the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth. This is how the gospel begins. We're about to embark on a great journey. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You for these opening words of the gospel of Luke. They truly are a testimony, a testament to Your love and to Your grace to Your people. And Lord, I thank You. I thank You that we get to Open the Advent season with the words of Luke. Now, a couple weeks ago, we were left with the longing for the Messiah. And then you sent us the Christmas story, and now we're about to embark. The Messiah is now here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.